This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. All right, thanks and have a seat. Find Acts chapter 1 in your Bible that you brought with you. If you didn't bring one, there's probably one close beside you in a chair. And uh, pull that one out. We'll be reading from there in just a few moments. Acts chapter 1, if you're our guest today, we're in a series, the fifth Sunday of a series called Ancient Foundations, and we're going back over our beliefs as a church. What is it that we believe that the Bible teaches? What are our core doctrines here at Nags Head Church? And so today we're, we're continuing that series. Uh, how many of you are parents here today? Raise your hand. If you are a parent, you'll, you'll relate to this, what I'm about to share with you. Uh, you can remember probably... Uh, and, so, and especially for you moms, it's probably vividly etched in your heart. But the very first time you as parents left your children, and, and maybe it was your firstborn, but you, do you remember the first time you left your child with a sitter? You know, you finally, after, you know, you had, you, you had this baby, and, 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 uh, and just eventually you said, you know, we just, we just need a break. We need to get away. We need to, a night out. We need to, you know, I need to go shopping, you know, whatever, and without wrestling with the kid and, and all those kinds of things. And, and you finally worked up the nerve to say, we're going to leave the baby, leave the child with a sitter. You remember that because that was one of the toughest things that you probably had ever done in your life. You didn't select just anybody. You know, you didn't put a sign out in your yard the night before, say, hey, I need a babysitter tomorrow, five to nine, you know, first, first come, first serve kind of a deal. You didn't do that. You carefully selected who it was that was going to watch your child. You wouldn't just trust your child to someone you didn't know. You wouldn't give your baby over for an hour or two or three to someone who did not have a rock-solid reputation. You found what you believed was the person who was the very best one that could take care of your child for that time that you needed away. And even if the sitter, because for a lot of you say, well, it was easy because the sitter was grandma. Even if the sitter was grandma, especially you moms will tell the truth, even as you you handed that baby over to grandma and you turned to walk out the door, you turned and took a second look and your heart was just kind of ripping up because, ah, can I really trust my mother, you know? <laughs> or even worse, his mother, you know? And so can I really, it was a difficult thing for you to leave that child with, with a sitter. You know, everything is, is everything going to be okay? Would the sitter know what to do in case something went wrong? And the whole time that you were gone, out to dinner, to a movie, shopping, whatever it is that you had to do, the whole time, you know, your mind's thinking, I wonder how things are going right now with the baby. I wonder how things are going at home. I wonder how the sitter's doing. Is there any problem? You know, Honey, do you think maybe I should, uh, uh, never mind, I don't care what you think. And you dial the number and you call, is everything all right? Of course, everything's all right, you know. Don't worry. How many of you remember that experience that I just described? And you say, yeah, Rick, that's kind of how what it was like. I remember that. Last week in our talk about Jesus being the Son of God, one of the things in our beliefs about him, or I guess really two of the things that we believe about him that are, that are foundational to our, to our belief, our faith as Christians, is that after he died on the cross, and then was put in the tomb and three days later rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. We're going to look at that story. He left. 
We're going to look at that story this morning. It's found in Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Follow along with me while I read. Luke is writing. He wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote it to a man named Theophilus, a friend of his. He also wrote the, the gospel of Luke to this man, Theophilus. He had done that one first, and now he's writing the Acts of the Apostles. And he says, Dear Theophilus, in my first book, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he ascended to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions from the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. On, the, on these occasions, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus talked in, 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 his, in his gospels. He was constantly talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is this and that and the other. And then he, he dies on a cross and then he ascends to heaven and his disciples are sitting, what happened to the kingdom of God that you talked about so much? It never showed up. You're gone. He talked with them about the kingdom of God. Verse 4. In one of these meetings, as he was eating a meal with them, again, he's giving them proofs that he's alive, eats a meal with them, he told them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised. Remember, I have told you about this before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, are you going to free Israel now? and restore your kingdom? They wanted to know before he left. He rose from the dead, and they thought, this is it. This is when he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Is it now, Lord? And look at his answer. He said, the Father sets those dates, and they are not for you to know. Let me call time out right here, because in, in church history, and especially in the last century or so, and it's going on right now, there, there have always been some teachers, some, some self-professed prophets, and preachers who have said, we have come up with the date that Jesus is going to return. There's, there's a thing going on right now. There's a guy up in Pennsylvania that claims Jesus is coming back in May of this year. And a lot of people are getting real excited about that because they believe what this man says. And then other people that, you know, I eat lunch with uh, regularly with a fella and, and every now and then because he saw that movie 2012, did you see that? He saw that, and, and every time something happens, you know, like the earthquake in Japan, he just kind of says, 2012, 2012, December 21st, 2012. And he says it in a joking way, but a lot of people, there are people that have always been trying to set dates for Jesus' return. Would you take a moment and look at what the Bible says to us here? The Father sets those dates, and he said to his disciples, they are not for you to know. So next time you hear somebody say, we have sat down and we've used the computers and gone through all the scripture and been through it with a fine-tooth comb, and we've put all this together and we have calculated the day that Jesus is coming back, you need to respond and say, you're full of baloney. Because the Bible says we won't know those things. In fact, Jesus even said when he was on earth, I don't know when it's going to happen, so stop asking. All right? We don't know. Well, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Not if you're ready. Not if you're ready. Look, let's read on. But, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and will tell people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, in all, throughout Judea, 
in Samaria, that's all the surrounding countryside, and to the ends of the earth. It wasn't long after he said this that he was taken up into the sky while they were watching, and he disappeared into a cloud. He just began to float up and was gone. And they watched as long as they could, and as they were straining their eyes to see him. You ever do that? You know, you watch something far, far away, and you've been getting a strain to see it. Last night, we were out at the beach waiting for the, um, the supermoon to show up. What a waste of time. And um, <laughs> I was expecting something really radical, you know, like, oh, my goodness, look at that thing. And it was, I don't know, I couldn't see it was that much different. But we were standing there watching. The sun had gone down, and we were waiting for it. And I, was, I kept looking out over the horizon. I want to be the first one to see it. And I looked and I looked and I never could. And then some little kid <laughs> with better vision than me looks and says, there it is. And you looked and you strained your eyes and you could just see the top. And it was kind of a pale orange, just barely visible coming up. We strained our eyes as they strained their eyes, watching Jesus disappear into the cloud. While they were watching, verse 10, as they were straining their eyes to see him, two white-robed men suddenly stood there among them. Whenever you see the Bible talks about white people clothed in white robes, usually it's talking about angels. And by the way, the Bible never describes angels in the female gender. Okay, I'm sorry, ladies, but when you die, you don't become an angel. None of us do. All right, that's another error. People die and they become angels. We don't become angels. Angels were created from before the foundation of the world, and they've always been around. These guys... These angels, these two men stand there that look like men. They're angels. They speak to them. And they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring at the sky? In other words, think maybe you've got something better to do. He's gone. Why are you standing there staring into the sky? Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven. And someday, just as you saw him go, he will return. After the resurrection, after the crucifixion, Jesus was around for 40 days. And it was during that time, those 40 days, he gave them some final instructions and proved to them that he was alive. Remember, Thomas, uh, you don't believe, you doubt. Go ahead and touch my hands, touch the wound in my side. He ate with them. He proved to them that he was, he was back alive again. And then it was time for him to leave and to go back to his father. That He had prayed for that. God, I'm, I'm anxious to get back to that place of glory I had with you before I came to earth. In the night before his crucifixion, he had told them this was coming. This wasn't a surprise to them. But sometimes God tells us things in his word, and we read it, and we hear it in church, and, and then when it happens, we go, I had no clue. But look at this verse in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. He said to them, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So they're watching, they're looking. He's ascending up into the clouds. He's vanished out of their sight. He's God, and that's how he can do that. Some people say, that's impossible. Well, he's God, he can do whatever. And he vanishes into the clouds out of their sight. And then reality hits the disciples. He's gone. I mean, he's really gone. But Jesus had left them in good hands. He had also promised them that when he left, the comforter, and we look back at the illustration I opened up with, the sitter, all right? The comforter, the Holy Spirit, would come and take up as the presence of God with them. And the angel who reminded the disciples 
Don't forget the promise that he made, the Holy Spirit's coming. He also said, and don't forget this too. He's, he, just as he left, he's coming back and he will come back and establish his kingdom. So today, church, here's, here's what we believe the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about who he is, what he does, and how long he's staying. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We talked about Trinity two weeks ago. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. Don't let, he's a third person. Don't let the word person, by the way, trip you up because a lot of times in our minds, the only persons we know are who? Other people, right? So when people say the Holy Spirit is the third person, they go, wait, 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 he's not a people, is he? You know, he doesn't have a body. How can he be a person? Person, as in personality. You don't have to have a body to be a person. He's a third person like the Father who Jesus said God is a spirit in John chapter 4. He is spirit in nature, meaning he has no body. So who is he? Well, he's God. He's not a force. He's not an influence. He's a person. He is divine. Never, if you want to see me get upset with you sometime, let me hear you talk about the Holy Spirit as it. Have you got it? What are you talking about? The Holy Spirit. He is not an it. Every time in the scripture, he's referred to as him or he in that kind of pronoun, masculine pronoun. When Jesus, God's son, was on earth, for example, he could be seen. All right? He had a physical body just like you and me. He was a man, 100% man, 100% God. He could be seen. And in fact, John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, the opening verses of 1 John 1, John said, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him, John said. I was an eyewitness. We saw him with our very own eyes, touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. That was Jesus. But here comes the spirit. He's invisible. He has no body. And so because I'm going to say some things. I'm going to try to dispel some myths today about the spirit. Because he has no body, he is not physical. That means we cannot touch him. We cannot feel him. We cannot see him. A lot of times I hear people say, I feel the spirit. Well, you know what? You can't feel the Holy Spirit. But here's what you can do, and I think this is what people mean by this. You can be aware of and be sensitive to what he's doing in you and what he's doing in other people's lives. You can know those things. But we need to be very careful that we don't confuse faith with feeling. A lot of folks, you know, their life gets some. everything's going wrong and going bad and the economy and, and, and sickness and, and, and relationships are breaking up. And, and for a lot of reasons, people start saying, I, you know, I just feel so, I got to do something to feel better. And somebody says, well, why don't you come to church? Why don't you go to church and try God? And they say, okay, I'm going to go in church, to church and I'm going to try God out because I need something to help me feel better. And certainly maybe that's what God can do is make me feel better. And I'm not saying that knowing the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't make you feel better, but please understand, that's not what it's all about. And a lot of times people, they confuse their faith with feeling. Why? We need to be very careful about that, that we don't confuse faith with feeling. 
You know, I, I, you know, I, I love it when I, um, I hear people say, and I see this on Facebook a lot, and, and I hear people say it, that, that something is, something's really good has happened in their life. You know, maybe God answered a prayer, God did something, and, and, I, and people, and I, I don't ever say this expression. I think it's, it's true, but I think it's kind of got cornyized. You know what I mean? But you hear people say this in a lot of circles, and they say, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. But I never hear people say that when they say, I got my pink slip today. I never hear people say that when they come out and they say, you know what, I just got news that I've got cancer, and it doesn't look good. But God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. I only hear people say it when they buy a new car, you know, or maybe they finally get approved for the loan for their mortgage or, or you know, something really, they have, you know, they have a baby or, or their, their, their child has a baby, you know, and they have all this, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. If that's true, it's true when we have cancer. It's true when we lose our job. It's true when there's destruction and when there's sadness and when there's pain. If God is good all the time and all the time God is good, that means all the time, doesn't it? But a lot of people, they, they go in this feeling thing about God. Be very, very careful that your faith is not based upon feeling. Be sure that you're grounded on truth because your feelings, here's the deal, feelings come and go. Feelings are like a roller coaster. But faith is grounded in truth, and it stays the same. Jesus said he was going to send to them another helper in John. Chapter 14, verse 16. The Greek word that's in there. For another, and this is what he said, I'm going to send you another comforter, another helper, another counselor, however it's translated in your version of the scriptures. But the word another in the Greek means this, I'm going to send you another of the same kind. He's just like me. What was he saying? God, I'm God, I'm leaving, but God's still going to be with you, but he's another of the same kind. He's not the same in person as me, as, as he won't have a body, but he's just as much God as I am, the Holy Spirit. He's God. He's eternal, like the Father and the Son. He has no beginning and no end. Always has been, always will be. How do you know that, Rick? Because the next thing says he's the creator. Remember last week when we read that passage out of Genesis where God said, let us make man in our image, the Hebrew word Elohim, a plural word for God. Let us make man in our image, God the Father, the Spirit, the Son. We're saying let's make man like, to be like us in these different ways. Job said in Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God, he said, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He's the third person of the Trinity. Number two, now is his time as God on earth. The Father, where is he? He's in heaven. He's seated on the throne. John talked about the vision in Revelation of seeing God seated on the throne. The Father is in heaven, seated on the throne. The Son is seated beside him at his right hand. The Bible says he's interceding, he's praying for us. He's defending us, as we talked about last week, as Satan, whenever, whenever I sin. Satan accuses me before God and says, see, see, he doesn't really care about you, doesn't love you, doesn't want to follow you. He's disobedient. He, he, he denies you all the time. How can you love him? And Jesus steps forward and says, uh, Father, just to, be, to remind you that, that when he was 10 years old, Rick accepted me as Savior, that what I did on the cross was payment in full for his eternal salvation. He's one of mine. And he defends every single time. He's busy with me. I don't know how he has time for any of you. But he stays busy with me. He's there defending me. Where's, but, but who's with us? The Bible tells us that the Spirit 
lives here right now in every believer. And he's, you know, he's always been active on earth. You saw him in the Old Testament. The Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. Always been active on earth because he's God. But since Christ ascended, was gone, and the Spirit was given, he gave birth to the church, and he now lives in and works through us. How? What? Well, what does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, here's what the Scriptures tell us. Here's what we believe. He lives in every believer in Jesus Christ. Where does he dwell? In you and me. And that's called his indwelling, or another phrase in the Scripture is his anointing. He lives in every single one of us. Jesus promised his disciples this. In John chapter, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. This is that same passage. Another of the same kind. Another counselor to be with you. How long, church? Forever. He is the spirit of truth. He remains in you and will be in you. And the Greek language there that says he remains in you, says, is the, the word in the Greek means he sets up his, listen now, because this is where, there's another myth. He sets up his permanent abode. He comes to live in you, and that's where he stays. He doesn't leave. He doesn't disappear. He comes to, you know, when I sin, that doesn't give him reason to say, oh, man, you've messed up. I'm out of here. He lives in me to convict me, to change me, to shape me, to make me more like Christ. He doesn't jump. He doesn't leave. He doesn't, you know, pull out. He remains in us forever. My sin doesn't force him out, although my sin does impact his effectiveness in my life. But he doesn't leave. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Jesus, or excuse me, John called this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers and anointing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. And every believer has this indwelling, has this anointing. Your body, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is where he lives. This is his sanctuary. We don't use that term here in this building. A lot of people say, well, where is your, I want to go see the sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary. This is just a, a, a room where we gather to worship. You, Christian, are his sanctuary. You are where he dwells. When we empty this place out this afternoon and there's nobody here, guess what? The Holy Spirit doesn't hang around and says, now well, what can I do in an empty room? He's gone with us, all right? He leaves when we leave. He's in us. So this is not a sanctuary. We don't have to invite him here today. Holy Spirit, please come and be with us. Hello, he's in me all the time. Do you get that? He goes everywhere I go. He hears every word I say. He knows every thought I think. He knows my attitudes. He knows my goings about. Everything as a believer, he's there to hear and to witness. Whoa. We don't have to invite him here. He's here because he indwells Christians. By the way, that thing about anointing in 1 John chapter 2, here's another myth. He anoints believers. He anoints believers. He doesn't anoint inanimate things. He doesn't anoint sermons. He doesn't anoint songs. He anoints you, Christian. Now, you may preach a sermon, and it may be, what God has for the people to hear today. You may sing a song or write a song, and it may be a wonderful thing, but he anoints believers. That's his anointing. 
So don't get that confused with other things. Christians are anointed. Then not only that, he places us in the body of Christ. That's what's called his baptism. Every believer has this, and it happens the moment that you believed in Jesus as your Savior, and it's a one-time experience. How many times can you be saved? One time. We'll talk about that next in the next couple weeks. But when you became a Christian, this happened in your life. You experienced this baptism by the Holy Spirit. So every Christian's had it, and I'll show you that in a moment. So it's not an issue of there are some Christians who are haves and have-nots. Have you, have you gotten it? I hear, you know, have you had it yet? This, it happens when you are born again. How do you know that, Rick? Well, even a church like the Corinthians, if you know anything about the letters to the Corinthian church, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, you know that when Paul writes to them in the very beginning of 1st Corinthians, he talks to them in some pretty stern terms. He says, hey, you know what? Y'all act like you're not even Christians. You live like you're, you've never known Christ. There's no, I don't, you know, there's not much happening in you that people can see Jesus in you. You're an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. You're fleshly. He says, I can't talk to you like you spiritual people because you are so carnal. There's no difference in you. What in the world has gone wrong with you? I mean, he lets them have it in those first few chapters. And so here's this church that... And he, then he progresses through the letter. He says, you're wrong about this, and you're wrong about this, and you guys are acting so wrong in all these ways, and you're not acting like Christ. And he, and he, and he shares that with them. And then, then he says this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. To this carnal church, to this church living out of God's will in so many ways, he says, but get this, we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now he says to them, please don't miss this. How many of them had experienced this baptism by the spirit into the body of Christ? What did he say? How many? And what does all mean? All means all, and that's all all means. He says to this church, all of us, we, Paul was including himself, me and all of you have had this experience. Well, if that's true that we've all had this experience in common. When did that happen? Must have happened when we all had that same common experience of trusting Jesus as our Savior. That's what places us into the body of Christ. So if someone ever asks you, have you had the baptism by the Spirit, and you're a Christian, the answer is yes. We all have. The moment that we trusted Jesus as Savior, he puts you into the body of of Christ. He places us in the body of Christ. Then he empowers us to live the life of Christ and to witness to the world of the gospel. He empowers us. That's called his filling. And this happens, this filling of the Spirit happens in your life, in my life, if and when I yield myself totally over to his control, when I surrender myself to him. Here's what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says, and he uses the analogy of being drunk with alcohol. He said, don't be drunk with wine. That's a command from God. Christians have no business getting inebriated, all right? We need to stay away from that as far as we possibly can. Don't be drunk with wine, and here's why. What happens to you 
I feel tempted to call somebody out and ask them, but I'm not going to do that. What happens when a person is, is drunk? Chad, when, when we say, we, Chad, stand up for a second, Chad, just in case we have any troublemakers here today, would you stand just for a second? Just, just a second. All right, sit back down. All right. Um, are you on your way or coming off of work? Going to the parade. When, when, you, hear, when you hear on the radio, what is it, E-T-O-H? Huh? Ethanol. E-T-O-H on board. That's what they say on the, on the I know these things. When they say E-T-O-H on board, that means ethanol is what? Alcohol. It means we got a drunk driver. We got somebody who's passed out on the road, probably drunk. You know, we got somebody that's had too much to drink. Isn't that what it means, Mary? I mean, Mary's the one that tells Chad that kind of stuff, right? So w- when a person gets drunk, what's happened to them? What has taken control over their lives? The alcohol. They've lost control. They say things they would never have said. They do things they would never have done. They, you know, we talk about they lose all their inhibitions. Okay, in other words, things that they normally would not do, they just go ahead and do. And then after they, after they sober up and their friends said, do you know what you did last night at the party? And they, oh, no. Why? They've lost control. Paul says we as Christians have no business not being in control of our thoughts and our actions and our words. So he says, stay away from that stuff. Don't be drunk with wine. But instead, he says to them, Give control of your life to who? The Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with Him. Now, here's another myth. That, that, here's preachers say dumb things. Here's something, and I'm a preacher. Here's something that preachers say sometimes. You know, it's, it's not an issue for you or me of how much of God do I have. When you trusted Jesus as Savior, you got all of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, you got all of the Holy Spirit. You have all the relationship with God the Father you will ever need. The issue is not how much of God do I have. The issue is how much of me does he have? We're to be filled with him. He has complete control over my life. You possess all of him. Then Paul says this. He goes on and he finishes this passage. He says, and here's what happens with a life filled with the Spirit. Praise comes from your heart with what? Singing. People come to church and they say, I'm not singing. I'm not, I, I don't have nothing to sing about. You're just announcing to everybody, I'm not full of the Spirit. Spirit doesn't have control of me. I have control of me and I'm not participating. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to praise. I'm not going to give thanks, he said there. Comes, all comes from your hearts. And in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 31, we're told the, whole, the apostles were filled with the Spirit, and it says, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They'd just been told, if you ever teach or preach in this name again, you're done with, all right? They'd just been beaten. Don't do this anymore, the Jewish rulers told them, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they said, how can we help but do this? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. This filling, by the way, unlike the baptism, this filling can be repeated many times in our lives. To the Galatians, Paul described it in, in uh, Galatians chapter, chapter 5, I believe it is. He said it, it's, it's a walking in the Spirit. And he said it's bearing fruit of the Spirit. When a person is controlled by the Spirit, he says you bear these fruits, these things, love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, meekness, gentleness, patience, self-control. He said that's all part of being filled with the Spirit. And that's why Paul also said this. And he said, I want, here's, how, here's how I live this life of, of Jesus. He said, I die daily to myself. And then I ask God simply to fill me up with him. Another thing the Holy Spirit does in our lives, he preserves every believer as a child of God. That's called his sealing. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes in him, talking about Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him you believe. Nobody believes without first hearing the gospel. That's what we believe. That's how we come to believe. When you heard the word of truth, when you believed, you were then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession. So God, when God redeems us, when we get to heaven, the Holy Spirit is the down payment to the praise of his glory. Now, how do you describe that? If you'll picture yourself, you believed in Jesus Christ, it's like God has this huge envelope called the body of Christ, called the saved, however you want to describe And he takes you, the moment you trust in him as Savior, and he puts you in this envelope, and then it's sealed, closed, like you would an envelope that you're sending in the mail, by the Holy Spirit. No one can open that envelope other than God, and he's not going to open that envelope and let anybody out of it until we stand before him in heaven, until that day of redemption. So that's what the sealing is all about. It's a, it's a preservation, if you will. The Holy Spirit guarantees your safe delivery in heaven once you've believed in him. Then another thing that he does, he enables us to serve the church by giving us spiritual gifts. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 and verse 7, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts. These are supernatural abilities that we have to do ministry. Different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. Then look at this. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Now, we all have these abilities as Christians to do ministry. And he says this, it's given to every single one of us. Now, he's, he's already in this passage, he's also talking about we've all been baptized by the Spirit, placed in the body of Christ. Now he says we've all been given this ability to do ministry. So the only thing that I can conclude is that the moment that you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came inside of you to reside in you, he sealed you, and at that moment he placed within you a gift to do ministry. Did you know what it was? Probably not. But you go to Tom's class, Discovering My Ministry, NHCU class, and Tom says, here's, here's some ways you can discover your gift. How did I discover my spiritual gift? How did I discover what God had done in me, given me to serve the body of Christ? It was kind of, it's a neat story. I love to share it. It's, I was 15 years old and, uh, in, in our church, and, and there was a need in our church for somebody to teach a Sunday school class of second grade boys. And my pastor came up to me, and I don't know why he came to me, have no idea what motivated him to grab me and say, hey, Rick, we have a need in Sunday school to teach second grade boys. We don't have a teacher. And I think it's a shame that there weren't any adults in that church to step up to the plate. But God had a reason for it. 
And he said, he said, I would like for you to teach this second grade boys class. And, you know, I wanted to please the pastor, you know, like everybody does. Sure, pastor, I want to do, right. I wanted to do what the, what the pastor, you know, I don't want to let him down. My pastor asked me to do something. I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And so they had this, I, I found myself the next Sunday, he gave me the material that I was supposed to study and teach, and, and they didn't have a classroom, the Sunday school class, this is in Southern California, so you can do this, but, but we met in a bus, an old school bus, and so here I am with these kids in a school bus, 15 years old, teaching seventh, second grade uh, boys uh, in Sunday school, and you know what I discovered by doing that? This is pretty cool. I like doing this. I got to study, and then I got to stand in front of them and say, here's what the Bible says, guys. And I found out this was something that, that felt almost natural to me. Actually, it wasn't natural. You know what it was? Supernatural, because spiritual gifts are given to us by God. How did I discover my gift of teaching? Somebody said, hey, I need you to do this. So, you know, that's how God got me into this discovery. Did I know that was my gift? I didn't even know what a gift was. I just knew I love to teach. That's how God put me in here. God wants you to discover what your spiritual gift is. Another thing the Spirit does, he makes sin known in the lives of believers and unbelievers. That's called his convicting or his conviction. When you and I who are Christians, when you commit sin, how do you feel about it? You feel guilty. Whenever you commit sin, if you're a Christian, if you don't feel bad about it when you commit sin, ooh, then I need to stop and say, is the Holy Spirit really living in me? Well, if he's not living in me, then I must not be a Christian and I need to get that taken care of. But every time you and I who are believers sin, we know that we've sinned. How do we know that? We know we've disobeyed God because within our hearts is this sense of conviction. And that's brought about in us by the Spirit, who lives in us. He knows everything I do. He knows everything I think. He knows everything I say. But not only that, it is the Holy Spirit who lets let us know before we trusted Christ as Savior. You think about when that moment was in your life. He's the one who lets us know that I'm lost and that I'm in need of a Savior. He's the one that brings us to Christ. John 16, verse 8, Jesus talks about the Spirit, and he says, when he comes... He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. That's the world's sin, he said. It doesn't believe in me. And, and, and what, what sin is that that he convicted us of then to bring us to Christ? It was the sin of unbelief. That's why we don't stand up here on Sunday after Sunday and preach to people who don't know Christ. You need to give this up. You need to stop that. You need to quit doing this and quit doing that and, and tell people all the sins that are in the world and why they need to stop them so they can come to Christ. The problem with that kind of preaching is this. Nobody, people who don't know Christ are, are unable to change their lives. They're unable to give that up. They don't have that ability what they need to do is they need to turn from the sin of unbelief and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, and then he lives inside of them. The Holy Spirit lives inside of them, and he can begin to transform you and me from the inside out, and that goes on the rest of my life. A couple more things. One more thing that he does. Through holy men of ancient times, he gave us the Bible. 
That's called his inspiration. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, 20 and 21, Peter writes and says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. You ever hear people say, well, you know, the Bible, that's just a book that a bunch of men wrote anyway. You ever hear people say that kind of, they use that argument? That's just man-made. Apparently not. He says, no, those prophets who wrote Scripture were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Andy covered this a couple of weeks ago, but the Bible, church, isn't a purely human piece of literature. It is uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit like nothing else, making it perfect. Now, some people say, well, I, I got this song God inspired me to write to sing to you today, or I've, I've, you know, I've got this poem that the Lord inspired me to write this poem. Not like he did scripture. Because if he inspired me in the same way to write a poem or a song as he did these guys who wrote scripture, and it's not in the Bible, something's left out. This is God, this book is God's unique revelation Genesis to Revelation, and it's over. It's, it's finished. It is God's inspired word. There's more that we don't have time to cover this morning. He teaches us. He guides us. He comforts us. But the point is this I want you to get today, Christian. God resides on this earth in you. And he isn't in you and me. Please hear me. He's not in us just to occupy space. He's in us for a reason. He wants to do his work and his will in and through us. Number three, quickly, his work on earth is limited in time. He arrived in the lives of believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the church was born that day. But one day the church's time on earth will be over, the scripture tells us. We will be snatched up. We will be removed from this earth. And with us it seems that As we go, it seems the scripture also says that the Holy Spirit's going to go with us and that his absence, with his absence being taken away, not only is he gone, not only are we gone, but grace will be ended and judgment will come on the earth and upon all who remain here. And his presence right now, since the time of Pentecost until this very moment, it is his presence that is holding back God's judgment on the world that has rebelled against him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes about the coming man we know as the Antichrist, and he calls him the man of sin who will defy everything godly and lead the world during the time of great tribulation. Paul writes these words, 2 Timothy 2.7. He says, For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Here's what it says. And there are people in all along church history, there are people say, we have identified who the Antichrist is. They thought he was Hitler. You know, and you go through all the terrible people that have lived in this earth and people in Christianity said, he must be the Antichrist. And the Bible says we don't know who he is. In fact, it says he's not going to be revealed until the Holy Spirit, who is holding back this judgment, is moved out of the way, is removed with us. So who's holding back judgment right now? Who's still extending grace to this world so that people can still believe in Jesus? The Holy Spirit. And when God removes us, his children from the world, the Spirit will go with us. And at the end of that period of judgment, which I believe the Bible teaches will be seven years, the baton that Jesus passed to the Spirit 
is going to be passed back to Jesus, who will return just as the angel told the disciples coming in the clouds to end that time of tribulation and to set up his kingdom on earth while he will reign here for 1,000 years. What are we doing now? While this is happening, we're getting ready. Are you ready for that day? That's why we're here. That's what he's doing in us, getting us prepared for that day. I was reminded this past week of a statement that I made prior to the series that we started in January and went into February on our church's vision. And that statement, I said this. I made the statement to the church. Can you get a little bit of light, Jimmy? I made the statement to the, to the church. We are going to, during this series on vision, we're going to likely lose some of our church partners and some attenders as a result of making the vision clear and plain. Some people are going to walk away and drop out. And guess what? I'm not a prophet, but guess what's happened? We've lost some folks. We've lost some folks who, including some people who were longtime partners who decided they could not buy into the vision that God has for this church, a vision that's gone unchanged now for, for 15 years. But they were honest enough to say, hey, you know what? We don't want to go the same direction as Nag said church. And while we wish they could remain teammates with us and be committed to that vision, they've chosen not to, and, and that's okay. But we've asked, please understand, we've asked nobody to leave. We didn't say to anybody, you need to move on. They've chosen to do that uh, on their own. And we may see some, as a result of this series that we're doing uh, right now on ancient foundations, do the same. The message that I preach today in some circles, the things I said are very controversial. So some people may say, look, we disagree, and so we need to, to disappear as well. But both vision that we talked about the first part of the year and what we're in now about doctrine, it's like a double-edged sword that draws a line in the sand and, and it requires me to make choices and it requires me to take a stand. But here's the deal with Nagshead Church. We believe what we believe because of what we read and understand in the Bible. And our beliefs, and if you're a guest here, um, our beliefs here are not broad and they're not liberal in any sense. In fact, they're really very conservative, and some would say they're very narrow. And I respond to that and say, you're right, they're as narrow as the space between Genesis and Revelation. That's how narrow they are. So the invitation that we give today to everyone is the same. Here's who we are, our vision that we did earlier, and here's what we believe, our doctrine. And if you agree with our beliefs and you're you're not a partner with us yet. We hope that you'll become one. We hope that you'll join us soon. In fact, last Sunday, we had some lunchtime with some folks, and Bob and Jane Jackson, um, a couple, uh, became partners in Nagshead Church. They're way up there, and they're way up in their 80s. They're the oldest people that I know of that have ever become partners in this church at that age. Really unusual. I'm excited for them. And they're excited to be a part of this. Jacob Newell, where are you, Jacob? You're hanging out somewhere close by. Right there, Jacob finally did, yep. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, maybe you're here today and you're not sure what you believe. Let me say to you, if that's the case with you, please understand, we've all been in that same situation where we weren't sure what we believed. 
So you're not the first to, to be in that, in that spot. But please know, if that's you, please know you're welcome to stay here, to come every week, to learn more and more and more. And please understand, I, I watch Steve every Sunday as he stands out at the front door, and sometimes I'm out there with him. I've never seen Steve stop anybody, check anybody at the door, and ask for their Jesus ID. I've never... You know, I've never seen Steve ask anybody about their beliefs or about their lifestyle. Anybody's welcome to come and see what Nags Head Church is about and, and, and hear what we have to say here. There are no perfect people here. You look around and we're not, none of us are perfect. There are only people here who have a desire to know God. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.